Simple Beep, Episode 66, Hardware Failures and Recalls. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. So many of our episodes are on cheery, positive, nostalgic themes, all the great stuff that we remember from Apple's past. But today we're going to go on a little bit of a different route with things that have not gone so well for Apple, particularly in terms of their hardware releases going all the way back to the 80s. But of course, every episode before we get to the main topic, we have to do some follow-up, some good follow-up going going way, way back, probably over a year, and some more recent stuff. Yeah, this first bit of follow-up goes back to our 35th episode about HyperCard. In that episode, we talked about a Medium post that we had found about HyperCard that was titled The Origin of HyperCard in the Breakdown of the Bicycle of the Mind. And that uh, article's author, Justin Falcone, heard our episode and got in touch with us and let us know there was actually the transcript of a talk he delivered. And now the video of that talk is up on YouTube. So if you'd like to watch it rather than read it, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. When I first saw that post, I think it was great that I got introduced to it as the Medium post because it's it's fantastic satire and it kind of took a while for me to realize just what was happening and that oh yes i see this this is a this is a brilliant piece of satire uh but the fact that it was performed live is uh even more impressive in some ways and now you can enjoy it in both formats mm-hmm. to a more recent episode just two episodes ago we were talking about 64-bit apps and the apps that were going to go away on our phones so we also heard on Twitter from Alec Pulianis that the What the Font app for taking a picture of a font and identifying which font the text is actually in got a big 2.0 update and is now 64-bit, and that was about three weeks ago, so since the last time we recorded. And I looked on the App Store today, it got another update, 2.0.1, with iPhone X support. So it is fully up-to-date an app that I thought was long, long gone because it still looked like it was from the iOS 6 days. Moving on to follow-up from our most recent episode about Apple's use of X in product names. The first bit is about the Macintosh XL. A friend of the show, Stephen Hackett, reminded us that the Macintosh XL had a not-so-happy ending where uh, he has a post on his site that we'll link to in the show notes that uh, references its unceremonious end one September day in 1989, I guess the the remaining inventory or some people who took up an offer from Apple to trade in their Macintosh XL slash Lisa computers for, I think, discounts on the Plus, the Macintosh Plus. So they were left with about 2,700 Macintosh XL computers that were buried in a landfill in Logan, Utah. They got the ET treatment. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought, too. Much, much smaller numbers, but still a pretty substantial write-off for Apple. And those were big machines, too. So nearly 3,000 of those giant uh, rectangular pixel monitors somewhere underground. And another piece of follow-up about that episode, we also talked about software products that had X as part of their name. And we talked about a bunch of components of the OS X operating system and left one out. At MacFixer on Twitter reminded us of XProtect which is Apple's anti-malware service that kind of runs in the background and is is one of those things that they can push updates to without needing to go through the system software update to keep a a list up to date of any malicious or suspicious files so that when you 
try to run them or, you know, whatever they do to manipulate your system, it can silently prevent that. Yeah, I think that it technically falls under the uh, gatekeeper framework, although we, we typically think of gatekeeper as being almost like a user facing feature where if uh, it detects something that's like an unsigned application, it says, hey, do you really want to open this? Whereas Xprotect is doing all this silent work in the background. And I think, you know, if it detects something, if it's like an actual application, it just won't, it may flash up a dialog box, but it just won't even let it run. There is no uh, control click to get the contextual menu and run malware on your system. <laughs> doesn't even let you get that far. And uh, its credit as a product with X in the name goes to the fact that I think the the full list that is silently and continuously updated is a .plist file somewhere deep in the library that is xprotect.plist. It's capital X, capital P, protect. Um, and I presume it's not pronounced 10 protect. But it's interesting because other things that are named this way, like Xcode, has like it has a lowercase c. It's not capital X, capital C. Um, so... A special little piece of of OS X with the uh, with the X in the name. That wraps it up for follow up. Uh, we already, I guess, we've already talked about one failure, although it was a business failure, not a uh, technology failure, with the Mac XL going into the landfills. Um, but we're going to go through, and, and this is a little bit inspired by current events because I think there's been a little kerfuffle in the Mac community about whether Apple is building its hardware up to its usual strict standards with lots of people's keyboards failing on their Mac laptops and wondering just what does it take to get Apple to issue a product recall or an out-of-warranty repair service. And it turns out that, you know, this is far from the first time that this has happened. And there are some ones that probably spring to mind immediately for you listening. And we're going to go more or less roll back the clock and do this chronologically. And it goes way back to the mid eighties. And we're going to go back before the Mac itself to the Apple three. We've discussed the Apple three in terms of hardware design and and its various uh, like sub models, but we didn't really discuss how the very first release, the very first revision of the Apple III hardware had what Steve Wozniak would go on to say was 100% hardware failure. And there are a couple reasons for why things might have failed. And there seem to almost be competing theories as to what was failing. But I think the prevailing uh, theories are that first, the Apple III's case was basically a giant heat sink for the processor. And uh, there's a mention on the Wikipedia article that uh, this is due to Steve Jobs' famous uh, strive for minimalism in the appearance of the hardware. So not only did he want no fan, as is a, a, an Apple thing that has uh, persisted to today, but he also wanted no vents, just let the entire thing passively cool itself. So the entire case was or I think maybe just the bottom of the case, whatever came into contact with the logic board was aluminum in uh, an attempt to passively direct heat away from the CPU and the logic board. However, (laughs) it didn't just stop there. It looks like uh, these giant big aluminum cases were complicated to make. This is before the modern days of the unibody laptops where Apple's gotten 
machining aluminum down to a science. And so there were high lead times to make these cases. And I guess they were still working on the chip design and the logic board design. So when the cases arrived, they had to modify their designs for the logic board a little bit. And the traces or the circuitry between components on the logic board were very tight, very close together. And uh, I guess in cases of extreme overheating, they would fail. They could short circuit. A larger problem is that sometimes the overheating seemed to affect the uh, the solder or the, the thermal glue or whatever that kept the whole logic board together. And some chips would simply fall off the logic board because of the extreme heat. Uh, that's that's fine. I'm, I'm sure that's not a problem at all. So needless to say, uh, if if all of these were to some degree true, what Waz said about 100% hardware failure seems inevitable and correct. Yeah, just to put that quote in a little bit of context, uh, he said that, and that was quoted in the January 1985 issue of Byte magazine. And so he had some proximity to Apple at that point. Uh, in 1985, Waz was no longer officially at Apple. Um, he had kind of come and gone a couple times at that point. And one of the things that was notable about the Apple III is that it was the only Apple computer in the Apple product line, as opposed to the Lisa or the Mac, that Waz didn't himself personally design all of the circuitry for. So not only did it not go well, but you can imagine that he felt that if he had done it, it would have come out much better. And so he was uh, definitely speaking his mind where he said 100% hardware failure rate. But like you said, Brian, hardly hyperbole, where practically every unit that was shipped was uh, replaced with a revised model, uh, not only for these problems of just it might not work properly. There was also an issue with the FCC in the United States, the Federal Communications Commission, who said that the original Apple III did not meet their like radio transmission requirements. And so like if, if you've ever... Uh, They've managed to get it off the back of the iPhones now, so it's like very clean. But if you ever saw an iPhone that was sold in the United States, there would be this sort of like regulatory information on the back saying that the radios all cor- you know, they all correspond to the appropriate regulations and that they won't cause harmful interference with radio transmissions, that kind of thing. Somehow the Apple III, probably because its case was acting as a giant antenna inadvertently, uh, did not meet these requirements and they had to replace the whole thing on the market and actually call the replacement one the Apple III Plus because the government wouldn't let them sell even the fixed version under the same name. So truly, the Apple III as a singular hardware product was 100% a failure. Like the the government even did not allow it to be sold. Exactly. Um, even those people who uh, had to use the Apple III because they worked at Apple hated it. Um, and one of these was uh, early Apple employee Dan Kotke. And the so the story goes, uh, in a fit of rage after his machine had crashed again, presumably due to loose connection inside, he just picked it up and slammed it against the table. And doing so, it like rebooted and sprung back to life. So he recognized that this was actually, quote, the fix for the Apple III hardware problems. Well, the chips are coming unseated because of the thermal issues. So every couple of days, just give it a a good solid whack and uh, it'll come back to life. It's like uh, 
old cartoons where someone would fix a, a TV that's picture was, you know, slightly out of sync or something. We'll we'll get to that later with Apple laptops. <laughs> For now, let's stick with some early desktops, though. The next one that had, uh, well, this was definitely more of an esoteric problem compared to the Apple III just basically not working for anyone. Uh, And I didn't know much about this, but apparently it was fairly well publicized at the time. I found an article in InfoWorld that we'll link to in the show notes. And this was a fault with the original Macintosh 2, and it had some problems with its ROM. I guess this also counts as bonus follow-up to the... uh, to the architectures show. So what happened was in the revision A of the Mac 2, its ROM, uh, you know, it was controlling all of the internal components. These were upgradable machines. They had new bus expansion slots. And one of the things that you could, I guess, plug into a new bus expansion slot was additional RAM. Mm-hmm. And these original Mac 2s couldn't address more than one megabyte of RAM on the new bus expansion cards. And if you put one of these in, it would lead to all kinds of problems. And the reason for this was that the piece of, I guess for lack of a better word, firmware that controlled the new bus expansion bus and slots was called Slot Manager, and it wasn't written as a 32-bit clean process. And because of this, it would overrun and start addressing the the RAM improperly. So this was noticed fairly quickly, and uh, because it was just with the ROM, once the problem was identified, more Mac 2s were still being produced, and they made a revision B ROM and fixed the problem in production. But apparently, the machines with the revision A ROM are rather rare because there was a recall program, uh, and... I don't know if these were like user serviceable, maybe, or like take it into your dealer and they would do the service for you for no charge. So people found out about the recall and got it upgraded just in case or whether they actually suffered this problem. And so the Revision A machines, we'll link to a forum post as well where people say, well, this is the place where you can identify based on uh, what's printed on the chip, whether it's a revision A or revision B. And if you have that revision A, hang on to it. I had no idea that this was uh, a thing that was associated with the Macintosh too. Like I've said many times on the show, the Mac I used for probably the first five to seven years of using a Mac was a Macintosh too. And I know that we had upgraded the RAM in one of the new bus... I think there were six new bus slots. That's an incredible amount of expansion slots. It, yeah, it really was. And I, like one was for the graphics card, and we had extra RAM in the second one. And as far as I know, there were never any problems, although my dad had done all of this before I can really remember anything. Uh, so I wonder if we had one of the Rev-B machines from the start, or if, I don't know, we just got lucky. I don't know. The Mac 2 was produced and sold from March of 87 to January of 1990. And the recall notice that we'll link to was in October of 87. So for the majority of its lifetime, uh, the problem had been identified. So it was really only those ones that were sold in probably spring and summer of 87, uh, maybe early fall, that were affected before they started fixing it in production. Moving on to the middle of the 1990s, when Apple was arguably at its worst as a company, they released the PowerBook 5300, kind of a a late model in the PowerPC era of PowerBooks. And 
um, we'll get to what the specific failure was for this. But as Ed mentioned before, uh, some laptops have had issues with graphics and displays. And I think there's a mention of this in the PowerBook 5300's Wikipedia article that it's probably something that happens in small numbers to all laptops. You've got thin cables that are going through a hinge that opens and closes often. And so some of these issues can kind of affect the, the entire line. But what was specific to the PowerBook 5300 was a prompt recall because the initial batteries it shipped with were at risk of exploding. This is probably one of the most prominent Apple recalls of their entire history. And I think uh, certainly of the 90s at that time when they were, like like you said, Brian, they were really struggling. And this was absolutely not what they needed to do was to sink money into an expensive and uh, really bad PR recall program. So obviously, as we record this show in 2017, there are more recent battery explosions, specifically the Samsung Galaxy Note 7, where many units made it into the wild uh, and then their batteries started exploding. At least in this case, the PowerBook 5300s that exploded, that whose batteries exploded, I should say, one happened, it says, as an, at an Apple employee's house, probably during uh, testing, pre-production testing, and one happened at the actual factory where they were assembled. And these first-run batteries were uh, manufactured and purchased from Sony, and they were lithium-ion batteries. These are battery chemistries that we're familiar with today. But, you know, this was already a black mark. It got publicized. So Apple recalled any of the 5300s that made it off the production line with the lithium-ion batteries and replaced them with nickel-metal hydride batteries that Apple admitted (laughs) provided... uh, less of less of a capacity i think wikipedia says 70 percent. one of these articles says 80 percent. whatever the case it certainly felt like you were getting a smaller battery um and this was also in the era of like three to five hours if you were lucky of, of battery life and just to tie it all together this was a, a black mark we've said this a couple times already to the point where a new york times article in 2001, full six years later, about exploding batteries in Windows laptops, still referenced this very specific recall of Apple's PowerBook 5300. I mean, it couldn't have happened at a worse time and only added to a widely held perception that Apple was severely behind uh, the rest of the computer industry. Yeah, this uh, exploding battery scandal is... <laughs> like you said, definitely been taken down a peg by the Galaxy Note uh, last year, but is still, at least for people who are Apple fans and longtime Apple followers, I think this is probably like top three tech battery recalls. Um, It immediately sprung to mind when we were going through that last year with all of those devices being recalled. And, you know, just the fact that lithium-ion technology was brand new then and is still standard now, and all of the like very recent restrictions that have gone into place on lithium-ion batteries. When you look at the exploding Galaxy Notes and like cheaply made hoverboard batteries, like just in the past couple of years, that's what's gotten us all these restrictions where like you're not allowed to put them in the cargo hold of an airplane, where you could definitely put your PowerBook 5300 in the cargo hold of an airplane. Or just, you know, a couple of years later when they had PowerBook G3 and they're like, hey, put 
two batteries in this one uh, and take it on an airplane with you. No problem. And uh, even now, just to the point where even when shipping items, um, like recently I bought a smart thermostat and then I realized that it actually wouldn't work with the heating system in my apartment. So I had to return it, but that was fine. It was from Amazon process the return and they give you the return shipping label and then like an equally large label that says like there is a lithium ion battery in here and it must be tiny i mean the thing was only like a couple inches across so nothing like the the big battery packs that were going in what six seven pound notebooks (laughs) seriously yeah moving along into the g3 era but back to the desktop with the blue and white g3 tower So I remember this machine for uh, the advertisements where they showed its giant door gracefully swinging open, revealing all of the internals and how easily upgradable it was and all of the great stuff that had going on in there and the innovative design that allowed for uh, that easy open and easy upgradability. But apparently, kind of like cramming all the bits into the Apple III to get the uh, the form just right. The function was sacrificed a little bit in the blue and white G3 as well. This was just one component, though it wasn't like massive overheating and hardware failure. Um, But it did have some troubles with the ATA or IDE bus that was hooked up to the different drive bays within the machine. And so this is, again, this is a Rev A, Rev B kind of issue. So on the revision A, there was an ATA33 interface, but uh, if you plugged in more than one drive, which was obviously a feature of a full-size, easily upgradable tower, or if you plugged in newer, later drives that came out several years after the machine was uh, released, and they had larger capacities or larger or higher RPM or something like that, then they were incompatible with the interface, the internal bus for the drives in some way that uh, led to all kinds of data corruption and badness if you were using them. And that's not exactly how you want your hard drive to be connected. So there were various workarounds for this. They tried to fix it in software in a release of OS X, but they realized that it really was a hardware issue and couldn't be solved in a less invasive way that led to a revision B uh, that changed it from the ATA33 to a UDMA33 controller for the drives and cleared up those issues so that those devices could be used and uh, upgraded long into the future. Remember that the Blue and White G3 launched, I think, with macOS 8.5 or 8.6 at, at its revision A. So those machines that saw Mac OS 10 were the the early days of Mac OS 10 and it's and you know a year or two later and it's just funny that uh the people who bought the very first blue and white G3s and kept them cuz I guess if if you used the hard drive that they shipped with and never tried to modify your hard drive setup you wouldn't really notice anything but the fact that Apple tried to sneak some kind of software patch into the early days of OS 10 for these people who kept their blue and white G3s and wanted to upgrade it when the hot new OS came along uh, was was particularly funny to me. And just to uh, to recap the potential storage options that you could have got 
with a brand new Power Mac G3. You could configure it with a 6, 9, or 12 gigabyte hard drive, multiples of three, not sure why. You could get uh, a couple different speeds of CD-ROM drive, a DVD-ROM drive, or a DVD-RAM drive, and yes, an optional built-in zip drive. So all of that could be running, uh, or, or much of that could be running on that bus, right? Oh, I see. But yeah, there was a lot of room for expansion. It was definitely encouraged because beyond the optical drive bay and that optional zip bay, you had three or four internal hard drive bays. So nine gigabytes sounds awfully limiting now, but that was definitely not the max. Not like when you uh, buy a new MacBook or something today and you go, well, this is all the storage I will ever have. So I better better plan ahead. Speaking of MacBooks, let's stay in the G3 era, but move back to portables and talk about the iBook G3. This is not the clamshell translucent toilet seat iBook G3, but the uh, like kind of frost white dual USB iBook G3. And this happens to be the very model of iBook that I purchased when we started this show because it was one of the last models to natively boot into the classic Mac OS rather than uh, classic mode. I've I've mentioned in episode 56 of this very show, which was our episode about our kind of process and setups for recording the show, that uh, there was a time early on in this show's history where this iBook G3 kind of went crazy in the display and had like random colorful bands uh, appeared over the Happy Mac at startup and then the display stopped updating. Even though the computer was clearly working, uh, the display kind of stopped and uh so i like i manually turned it off left it for a couple months and it it works again it worked today i i double checked uh i did not realize at the time even though uh a listener tweeted at us that this was a common thing that yes it was a common thing <laughs> that the uh the later models of this non clamshell ibook g3 had faulty logic boards that could cause all kinds of video problems they're listed as scrambled or distorted video, appearance of unexpected lines on the screen, intermittent video image, video freezing, or the computer just starting up to a blank screen. I think you had all of those. <laughs> Pretty much. Isn't this also the one that smelled like feet? Yes. Yeah. This iBook had a whole host of failures. Yeah. This is the one with like the glue under the keyboard after time would kind of off gas uh, <laughs> very similarly to body odor. Right. So th- that that took so long to develop that of course there was no recall program for that if you're foolish enough to still be using one of these computers like us uh especially like you brian <laughs> then then that's on you just hold your nose but the video problems started cropping up fairly soon so there was an official recall that initially only covered machines manufactured in about a year from may 2002 to april 2003 but they later extended the recall to the end of the iBook G3 line, all the way to machines manufactured in October 2003. And at that point, they had released the iBook G4, which, of course, did not have these faulty logic boards. And uh, I don't think this recall program is still in effect. Otherwise, I would almost send in my machine just to see what they would do. Take it to the Grove. See see if they've ever seen one before. You whippersnappers. Well, actually, the the next machine that we're going to talk about, I took in uh, to get repaired on recall, and it was well before the Apple Store and the Genius Bar even existed, or they barely existed. They certainly didn't exist uh, in Ann Arbor at the time when I was going to college. And this was my 
college laptop, the Titanium PowerBook G4. And uh, there were, as, as you alluded to, Brian, many problems with laptops involve the parts just being too small and being in delicate portions of the machine. And so one of the notorious things that happened with the Titanium PowerBook is that sometimes its hinges would just like plain snap off. That's bad and obvious. I had a slightly more mild version of that. And there were some parts of this machine that were, uh, I guess, pretty rugged and others that were not. So uh, these stories both happened uh, during my freshman year. Uh, The first one is that the display on this, uh, on my PowerBook, went really weird. Um, And after some experimenting, I'm playing around with it. Oh, if I hold it just right, it comes, it's fine. And then if I hold it a little bit differently, all of the white goes cyan. So like the red channel is completely gone across most of the screen. And of course, this is like, yeah, I should have known immediately that this is a loose ribbon cable, basically. But because that ribbon cable is traveling from the logic board through the hinge to the display, there is effectively no way to dissect and like reconnect it, even though it's basically just a little piece of wire that, um, you know, <laughs> if you could pick it up and slam it on the table in just the right way would, you know, would fix it, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's impossible to do this like precision surgery on the hinges. So I took it to the on-campus authorized Apple repair place. And uh, they tried to fix it in-house, and then eventually I think they sent it away for the equivalent of a depot repair to get an entire new screen. Uh, So the whole thing went away, came back, had some dead pixels, but it was way better than it was before. Um, And so that was the first thing that happened with my Titanium PowerBook. After that, it was remarkably rugged, including after the time that I spilled an entire cup of hot tea on it. Uh, directly into the keyboard, at which point I thought the whole thing was toast. Uh, But it survived somehow. (laughs) Um, So that part was not faulty, but the uh, hinge design certainly was. Other people also complained that the uh, overall finish on those laptops was not very good. Uh, This was the titanium line. And of course, titanium was more about, you know, it, it was a minority metal in uh, what was being used in both the the case and uh, the finish on the outside. Uh, I think there was some titanium in the paint, but that meant, uh, but that partially contributed to the paint starting to flake off over time, which led to a not exactly pleasing worn look. And that was uh, also dependent on quite how much you abused your laptop. Despite the stories that I just told, I think I treated it fairly well, made it through four years of college and uh, with only a few dings in the finish here and there. Now that we're in the G4 era, we'll move back to desktops and specifically another machine that may be primarily remembered for being a business failure more than a hardware failure, the Power Macintosh G4 Cube. Certainly not a... uh, a design failure from one standpoint, it is in the Museum of Modern Art, but uh, one piece of hardware design that it was notorious for uh, not living up to its sterling reputation 
was the plastic shell, not the actual machine itself, but the clear plastic shell that it was suspended in would develop little hairline cracks around the seams or, or stress points. And uh, I think this was pretty widely publicized, but we'll put a link in the show notes to the one and only John Syracuse's review of the PowerMac G4 Cube for Ars Technica, where uh, he gets hypercritical about these cracks uh, to the point where he couldn't get a good enough photo of them himself. So he used a photo, I think, from ZDNet magazine where they had like lit the machine from the bottom in a dark room so that the the direction of the light would kind of go through the plastic material itself and accentuate these cracks. Uh, it's it's a very John Syracuse type of thing because he, he drills in. I wouldn't call them cracks. They're more surface cracks. Uh, I can feel them with my fingernail, but not really the tip of my finger. It's uh, It's worth reading. Um, we all know that the, the G4 cube is widely regarded as a failure, but again, probably more so because, uh, it, it wasn't priced well for what it was and didn't sell as well as everyone wanted it to, not necessarily because, uh, the, the early revisions or the early runs of the product had easily crackable cases. And there were certainly plenty of opportunities in the G4 cubes design for things to have gone wrong. I mean, it's really one of the the first Johnny Ive, let's pack it into as little space as possible. Let's minimize the fans, uh, you know, the the thermal corner that they infamously got into with the, the Mac Pro. All of those problems could have happened here to the point, you know, even to the point where you might be at a Apple III meltdown. Uh, but the machine, although underpowered, uh, I guess they did that on purpose to make it robust. And so... To that extent, they at least were able to make it uh, survive. Uh, if you could ignore the cracks, your machine wasn't going to burst into flames or uh, have parts fail on you. So there, there was no recall here, just a little bit of structural failure. And looking at these pictures that we'll link to, these kind of cracks and the, the clear plastic that they're in, they make me think of another artifact of basically that same time period, which is the CD jewel case. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, if you bought a CD and took it home and put it on a shelf and were, like, very ginger with it, then those little, you know, I don't know, polycarbonate cases that they came in could last for a while. But if you tried to, like, transport them at all, like, in a backpack, like, even for one day, um, just, like... They were made of this very brittle plastic that would seldom break, but would often get these kind of stress cracks in them. And uh, it makes me think exactly of that. Um, so it wouldn't have been an uncommon sight for people who had the G4 Cube at the time. Mm -hmm. While we're on the theme of cracking cases, we should probably talk about what was the most infamous case cracking of Apple's history, which was with some of the original MacBook cases. So these were the also white plastic, similar to the iBook that we were talking about a little bit ago. And the thing was that these were some of the uh, original designs that held closed with magnets. And this led to all kinds of problems. The plastic that they put on the top case of these devices was really not up to the wear and tear that they were going to be in for, both from the closure device and from people's hands. So one of the things that people started noticing fairly quickly is that the plastic would 
rather quickly turn from its original white to a bit of a sweaty yellow (laughs) on the palm rests. And if that wasn't bad enough, then it started to go even further in the same area where it you would almost get a sense that like your hands were starting to weaken the plastic at first, like your your grimy, gross hands <laughs> had this power over the plastic um, because then the the force of just opening and closing the lid, it was very, you know, nice, pleasing uh, closure. But over time, just that like hitting of the top case and then the pulling back weakened the plastic to the point that uh, pieces of it that you could tell directly lined up with the magnets. Um, you know, like you could even take, you can still do this with a MacBook. It's like if you take a paper clip, you can find where the magnetic closure, and you could just like stick it to the top, which will often surprise people <laughs> in your in your office or classroom if you do that. Um, but it it did. It totally lined up on these MacBooks so that you could tell that the magnets were just chunking away at the plastic. And then if it didn't get replaced, I mean, at first it was really just kind of aesthetic, but then because of the way that the material crumbled, we need a, probably like a Dr. Drang analysis on this, but like the way that it would sort of crumble away and constantly be under hands for further use, it could like spread and spread and spread until you could kind of like almost see down into the machine, like you're actually removing the top case. Uh, and that, of course, could cause lots more problems than just like a little aesthetic chip here or there. So I think there was an extended warranty replacement uh, option so that even if you didn't have the extended warranty Apple Care, then if you went in and you said, well, here, open up my MacBook, you can see what's happened, uh, they would replace that plastic for you. Uh, there was a recent episode of Connected where they talked about this and how that was like a relatively easy and cheap piece to fix. You just basically pop off the piece of plastic, replace it with another one, as opposed to what's happened now with the Apple keyboards that need to be repaired, where you're not just replacing the, the keyboard, you're basically replacing everything but the screen. The opposite of the problem that I had with my titanium PowerBook. And that was one of the most expensive repairs that you could make would be to replace the whole screen. A top case on a MacBook was relatively simple, but now we're to the opposite problem where uh, the screen is like, that's, that's the inexpensive piece, uh, but not what's failing. Moving now into a little bit more modern MacBooks, MacBook Pros, MacBook Airs, we're getting into recall and replacement programs that are still active. You can go onto Apple's support site and see a list of all their current programs for hardware replacement or hardware recalls. And the first we'll talk about now is the GPU failures in certain MacBook Pros. Specifically, it started in the 15 and 17 inch models pre-retina manufactured in 2011. And then I guess Uh, continued when the 15-inch went Retina in its 2012 and 2013 models. And uh, obviously, I've never owned any of these machines or even used them in work cases. So I've heard about these uh, these GPU failures, but uh, never experienced them. However, I guess uh, we're, we're at the point where these are still kind of modern enough machines that if you have one and uh, it's still an active duty, you can go in and get the uh, the GPU replaced. In a separate component, there was a, a recall for the 
flash storage in certain models of MacBook Airs. And Ed alluded to this earlier when he said, like, now we buy these laptops and you got to make sure you know what you want when you place your order because everything is sealed in there. And I think the the second major revision of the MacBook Air kind of nailed this home where it wasn't just the memory, but it was the hard, well, not even a hard disk, there's the, the storage. It wasn't even uh, like an SSD module that you could swap your spinning platter hard drive out for. It's just like this little series of chips on the logic board. And apparently the uh, summer of 2011 through the summer of 2012, I think both 11-inch and 13-inch MacBook Airs had uh, problems with their flash storage where the warning on the official Apple recall page is, if your drive is affected, we strongly recommend that you do not install any operating system updates or new applications. That is not a good warning. That's basically saying just turn off your computer now. Because what that means is like, if you're doing that, those are like heavy IO intensive things. And anything that is heavy IO could just bring the whole thing down. Knock on wood for me, I haven't had any devices with integrated storage where the storage itself has gone bad, which is a good thing because in, I think, all of my previous laptops, at one point or another, there was at least one hard drive failure. And that was the kind of thing that if you had backups, you could you know handle totally on your own. Whereas now, uh, if it happens early, you're looking at uh, a warranty repair. And if it happens later, you're looking at just, nope, onto a new machine. And now we're going to move away from Mac hardware failures and into iPod, iOS, and uh, that the, the mobile ecosystem of hardware failures because, unfortunately, Apple is not perfect here. Um, and I wanted to start with a recall that I actually remember being a part of, like sending the piece away and getting a, a piece back. And it's not for a device that powers on and, and has a screen. It's for the little wall plugs, the little wall adapters that come with a lot of these devices. There have been a couple recalls for these. And uh, the first, I think, was for the the international kind of plug heads that you can swap out of the larger chargers, chargers for laptops. Uh, apparently, there were some of the international uh, plug heads that could, I guess, just kind of like break and expose wiring or something in a way that is dangerous. So there is another, I think, still active uh, adapter recall program for certain uh, uh, plug types for, for certain countries. You can send in your piece and uh, Apple will send you the, the fixed piece back. I still love the name for those particular pieces that are sometimes called duck heads. <laughs> yeah. So if you're international duck head, is at risk of... <laughs> <laughs> Title, if we did that for these episodes. Yeah, International Duckhead. Um, so yeah, if you have one of these lying around uh, that's uh, in, in the window for being replaced, uh, no reason not to. Moving on to the recall that I do remember, uh, the, the ultra-compact USB chargers for iPhones and iPods and other small mobile devices. The original iPhone, and I want to say maybe even the 3G, came with not a full 10 watt, but a but a larger USB wall charger. I don't know how many sizes of these we've had over the years, but uh, somewhere in between the original one that was that came with the first iPod, that's kind of the size of the one that that ships with uh, the MacBook 12 inch, and the current one we have today. 
The one we're talking about is the current one we have today, the very small wall wart for uh, American electrical uh, outlets. These were at risk of the the prongs falling off, I guess, if you're uh, removing it from the wall. It's obviously not something you want to have happen. So you could send in your itty-bitty USB charger and get one back. And the telltale sign that is still on all of these that they ship today is a little green dot. Not even a sticker. I think it's inked on a little green dot on the side of the charger that goes into the wall. As a cool side to this, Apple also issued a recall for any of the millions of third-party knockoffs of these little chargers that you can like get out of a clear plastic jug at a gas station counter for, you know, like five bucks or anything, because if Apple's, you know, high standards let this slip by, of course, the like the very cheap knockoffs are going to have problems, too. So Apple did the right thing where it's like not only will we uh, accept all the the ones we made that could cause any type of serious electrical shock and, and harm, we'll take other ones that were clearly manufactured to look like ours. Uh, because we don't want any confusion. We don't want anyone to get hurt. Yeah, we tend to think of those pieces as just sort of like free stuff that comes in a box with an Apple product. And I think there was a great teardown. I'll try to find the article for show notes where someone said like, why do I have to pay $80 for a new MacBook charger when when it breaks? And they like it, they took apart a Apple One and a knockoff MagSafe charger. And... Basically, they're like, if you have this knockoff brand charger, your house is probably burned down by now because it was made in an extremely shoddy way with like, you know, $3 of components where the Apple one has like $12 of components. It's, it's really pretty interesting and uh, a definitely a mission critical piece of using all of these devices. And, you know, really one of the areas where, yeah, where electronics products can most easily go wrong is in the power itself. Um, you know, all of these other things, even even down to like, you know, corrupting your entire hard drive and having massive data loss. That's that's a major inconvenience, but it's not going to end in tragedy. Uh, it's not going to injure or kill anyone. But the you know, when you're dealing with, you know, turning turning various forms of energy into electricity, there's always going to be some heat that comes associated with that. And if you have way too much, you have a problem, a, a big, dangerous problem. So one other product that had this happen to, um, this one I had actually forgotten about because uh, I think of PowerBooks instead because that's the kind of person that I am. Uh, but there was one in the iPod line, and this was actually with the first generation iPod Nano. A, a wildly successful product by all accounts. Remember that it replaced the best-selling iPod of all time. The, the Mini was killed and replaced with the Nano, and it went on to have several generations, all of which sold very well. But there was a battery recall with the first generation because some of them could have ones that overheated to the point that people started noticing it in their pockets as they were playing their music. <laughs> um, you know, not that they were actually catching on fire, but that it was certainly outside of tolerances. And so there was a, a program to replace them. I, I believe it was actually a repair program where these were, you know, yes, very miniaturized, very small 
probably need a spudger to crack it open kind of uh, operations, but it was still within the realm of repairing and putting in just a new battery rather than a whole swap out replacement. When I saw the first generation iPod Nano on our show notes, I thought it was going to be for how easily every face of it could scratch uh, from the, the like the very polished steel chrome back to the like the what is it called when the zoom came out they called it like double shot plastic layering on the front um i fell in love with the ipod nano at its uh introduction when it came out of the coin pocket so i think i ordered as soon as the the orders went live so i got one of the first ipod nanos and very happy with it and i don't even think it scratched that much um but i think when the, the the public outcry over like, oh, this beautiful thing just scratches up so easily, Apple started including a very simple sleeve case, like two pieces of fabric stitched together on three sides um, in the box for the iPod Nano to kind of like, well, okay, you can put it in this simple thing to prevent it from scratching when it's in your pocket. And I remember like, I didn't even worry about the iPod scratching, but I was like, I got I got frozen out of a a free thing and I kept calling the Apple store from my college dorm phone being like, you just have an extra. Could you send it to me? I'll even pay for it. I'll pay. I want, I want the simple first party Apple sleeve and uh, never got it. But you did get some iPod socks. I did get some iPod socks. Still have one of them. (laughs) And uh, the, the kind of coda to this story is when the second generation iPod nano came out and it had uh, a better, more robust, casing but also the ability for uh gapless playback so if all my live albums didn't have like the split second of silence in between the tracks i immediately gave my first generation ipod nano to someone in my family and bought the second generation and then whenever the recall happened i still it was still in like my the early days of your apple id or i guess just you know straight up registered to my name so i got the recall and passed it on to i think my dad and he did he he got the first generation iPod Nano's battery replaced. So I saw like all all sides of this. So yeah, you mentioned that they were uh easily scratched products and uh we're now going to move on to the iPhones. Uh the original iPhone of course scratched up quite a bit. There are some great pictures of people's really dinged up original iPhones. Uh and I have a feeling that the chrome on my brand new iPhone 10 is going to go that way eventually. Um, but it's, it's going to look good, just like the original iPhone did. But a few scratches here and there is not enough to qualify as a real hardware failure. Uh, instead, we're going to talk about all the gates that happened with later versions of the iPhone. And of course, the most infamous one is Antenna Gate. I think that the gate suffix hadn't been applied to iPhones until Antenna Gate, and now every... Every year when a new iPhone comes out, someone is looking for just exactly what went wrong with it. Uh, So Antenna Gate was with the iPhone 4. It was the first iPhone that had the antenna bands uh, built into the outside of the case to help make it thinner and lighter. And this has been a feature of basically every iPhone since and lots of other phones uh, from other manufacturers have started doing these kind of things uh, to optimize their designs and make the phones as small as possible using the outside of the case as uh, you know, basically the transmitting surface. And some people noticed that, well, yes, because that is the antenna, if you, uh, if you squeeze it or hold it in just certain ways, that 
uh, you can somewhat reduce its transmitting uh, or receiving capability. People would show there were videos online of people holding their phones and look, I held it and and the signal went from three bars to two bars because that's an accurate measure of exactly what's happening with my phone at every instant. Um, but it was enough of a deal that Apple had to respond to it. Steve Jobs was not happy at all, uh, famously quipping people that you're holding it wrong. Um, but eventually... Apple was forced to capitulate on AntennaGate. They had a <laughs> a very bitter press conference at Town Hall in which they announced that they would not be fixing the phones themselves because that's very, very expensive. But since the problem appeared to be with people's hands coming into contact with the phone, they would be giving everyone a free bumper case, which to my knowledge was the first bumper case ever created. No one had even really thought to put this kind of just like ring around the phone and nothing else. And of course, the iPhone 4 design also facilitated that being because it had the uh, squared off chamfered edges, um, which I still kind of miss, you know, when when the design now it's a little bit slippery. Sometimes um, those those square corners were very easy to grip. So people gripped them very hard. Uh, and that led to, uh, you know, probably not a huge outlay from Apple, probably like distributing the cases and sending out emails to all of the affected people was more of a cost to them than the two cent a piece rubber bumpers that came from China. Uh, We mentioned in our architecture episode that you can go back in your, uh, your iTunes purchased history and see like all the apps you've gone and it's fun to see what the the early apps you bought were and i still have an entry in there for the app that was select which bumper you want because you're an iphone 4 owner uh i don't think that it resolved to an active listing in the store but it still appeared in my uh purchased apps list wow the next uh gate suffixed scandal was Bendgate. This was for the iPhone 6 and 6 Plus. I think pretty quickly after the phones were made available to customers, people started noticing that if you left them like in your back pocket and sat down all day, uh, that they would start to slightly bend around where the side volume buttons were. Yeah, it turns out if you smash the phone, it gets smashed. (laughs) Yeah. And I think... Still to this day, the iPhone 6 is the thinnest iPhone ever produced. They got slightly thicker for the 6S and 7, 8, for uh, 3D touch, force touch, whatever we call it. Um, And so there was a little bit of a weak point in the the thinness of the aluminum. um, And for whatever reason, it it was thinnest near those volume buttons. And cosmetically, sure, this is this is not ideal. And I think people were you know, still not appropriately outraged, but a little more justifiably outraged at this one. But what it turned out to be was uh, something a little bit worse, where specifically on the 6 Plus, one of the chips on the logic board, and specifically one of the chips that helped control uh, touch recognition on the screen, was located in the area where these cases would commonly bend. And now there are there is an official recall program i think that is still active for the 6 plus not the 6s plus uh if you're 
if it just stopped responding to touch or there were some weird display artifacts, I think uh, it's it's been proven to be linked to something on the logic board has been damaged in the area where these phones were found to commonly bend. Yeah, the recall notice says that it's like if you dropped or put stress on your device, but it is not broken, like the screen is not shattered, then it is eligible. If you really you know, totally broke it, then that's on you. <laughs> So not just the uh, side of the iPhone 6 had problems, but also the front, uh, where some people started to notice that over time, again, I guess because if, you know, maybe even your phone bent but imperceptibly and some of the, the tolerances got a little bit off and things could wiggle around in there, they noticed that with the front facing camera on the phone, that the little, like... I don't know, like housing, internal housing around the lens could start to shift. And this would create a little crescent moon shape because it was actually partially covering the lens. And if this got too bad, then, you know, you wouldn't actually be able to use the front facing camera properly. And this was sometimes called selfie gate or crescent gate because people love the gate suffix and it would affect the the selfie camera and there was, I think, also an extended warranty repair program for that as well. I think it was similar to what you were talking about with the the MacBook, the original MacBook cases, where it was a thing that within your original warranty, you could walk in and say, like, look, you can clearly see that the front facing camera is slightly out of alignment in the housing. And I think it was just understood especially once it it picked up some traction that like, fine, this is replaceable if you're in the first year or whatever. Yeah. So I think there was uh, one of the articles that we'll post, people were pointing out like, hey, if uh, we're we're getting to that time of year where uh, if you've had your phone for, you know, 11 months, now might be the time to to check your selfie camera and uh, see if you want to get it fixed or whether you're just going to move on or not care about it. I remember hearing about this and I could see a noticeable but very slight crescent on my iPhone 6 indicating that it, you know, the camera was slightly off. But uh, all the photos I took with it, which is to say not that many, uh, were fine. And so I lived with it for two years. I had an iPhone 6 for, for three years and uh, didn't have any problems. The only problem that I had with the uh, front-facing camera is that then uh, when I imported them to my Mac and went in Lightroom and said, display them at full size. I'm like, why Why is it not zooming into full size? They're, they're very small in the center of the screen. Oh, that's actually just the maximum resolution. And finally, you know, hopefully finally, the last gate we'll, we'll ever have to discuss was with the iPhone 7 Plus. And friend of the show, Stephen Hackett, was actually the patient zero of this one. It was his gate. He uh, was able to detect some noise coming out of the iPhone 7 Plus when it was under kind of a a heavy CPU load and not like actual speaker audio, but but a noise of, you know, some component, whether a a transistor or something being under load. And uh, I think more interesting than the fact that this was something that happened to his hardware and maybe some other people's hardware was that he wrote a really cool reflection on what it was like to be the center of attention for another Apple gate. And uh, we'll put a link to that piece in the show notes. Yeah, right. Steve Jobs took all the flack for antenna gate. (laughs) Stephen Hackett took the millions of YouTube views for, uh, for his gate, um, which uh, is a, 
very weird place to suddenly find yourself in. And yeah, this was not a really spectacular or new problem. Um, you know, th there was much uh, trying to explain it, people figuring out what uh, coil hum is. And the fact of the matter is that these kind of things happen on electronics forever. Um, I remember on one of my, I think it was on my PowerBook G4, that after having it for a while, I noticed that if you were in like a really dead quiet room, like, you know, like a study room at the library, and you just scrolled a window, there was something in the GPU or whatever was driving the the monitor that that put it, you know, like when when the screen is idle or only a few pixels were changing, it wasn't doing much. But if you even just scrolled a web page and refreshed a large component of the screen, you would hear this little like clicking, whirring, humming, like it was actually physically doing something to to scroll the window. Um, and is the same thing as what uh, wound up being Hisgate, although in that case, Apple said, yeah, that is, uh, again, outside of tolerances and not what we expected, um, and many people got their iPhone 7s replaced. And that brings us up almost all the way to the present, uh, back to those MacBook keyboards that we mentioned at the top of the show. One other thing that we have here at the at the very end of uh, our notes that's probably worth mentioning is that some of these hardware recalls, especially, um, well, I guess it was up until, what, 2013, um, there, there was a tool that Apple had that was called the Apple Hardware Test, and it would come on a separate CD, um, or then in, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was, optical based and then it got phased out in lion because they were expecting that most machines didn't have optical drives anymore and what you would do is you would you would uh stick it in and you would hold down uh i think it was the d key on startup and it would boot from the hardware test cd it would not boot into mac os like you would expect on like a system install cd or like recovery mode where it really even like looks like mac os it would very slowly and painfully go directly into the Apple hardware test, which was used until 2013, I might add, and looked like Mac OS 9. Yep. <laughs> like you would have a machine that was running, you know, 10.4 and you've been using Mac OS 10 for five years. And then they say, oh, there might be something wrong with your GPU. We want to run the diagnostic. Here, put this <laughs> put this disk in and boot up into the past uh, <laughs> to find out whether your machine was broken. Uh, I think, honestly, kind of falls outside of the, the things that we talked about here. But on the other hand, I think it was the last piece of software that Apple shipped that used the Platinum interface, and it persisted all the way till 2013 which is pretty remarkable. Yeah, I'm looking for screenshots now uh, as we record. And it, it's exactly as you said, it's the platinum interface with like uh, bitmap fonts and everything. But what's uh, another level of funny on top of that is, yeah, this is like a different OS. This is its own separate boot protocol. So you can't take a screenshot because where would it save? Uh, so all the screenshots, quote unquote, screenshots of the Apple hardware test are like actually photos of the, <laughs> of the screen yep. with like CRT banding and everything. Yeah, it's delightful. <laughs> it was using all of the platinum, uh, you know, window resources, but it was like, you know, this is not really a consumer piece of software and did not follow the human interface guidelines at all. 
So it has like three tabs, but then there's like a big platinum button that says test. That's just like way too large for the word test, which is just kind of hanging out in the middle of it. And then it would basically run disk utility. It kind of looked like disk utility did in OS 9 and early OS 10. This has since been replaced by something uh, that I think is called Apple Diagnostics and is part of the the recovery uh, partition or internet recovery and can run even remotely and looks a lot like uh, sort of like the kernel panic screen, which is not reassuring when uh, that's the interface that you decide to use for a hardware diagnostic, but uh, that's what it has finally been replaced with. Okay, I think that really and truly brings us to the end of past Apple hardware failures and how to diagnose them. But if we missed something, uh, a notable Apple hardware failure or recall, of course, you can get in touch with us and tell us about it. You can find the show on Twitter at simple underscore beep. Or if you have a longer comment, you can go to our website, simplebeep.com and send us a message through there. Uh, Also, if you have any stories of your own particular hardware failures or going through the recall process, let us know and we may include it in follow-up in a future episode. You can also find us individually on Twitter. I'm at Bisuto, B-S-U-T-O. And I'm at E. Cormany. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.